Well, the Lord bless each one of you on this day. I especially greet those that may be viewing. And yes, uh, it's good to see many faces here in our uh, sanctuary this morning as we come together in this particular facility where we can all be comfortable. And uh, I praise God for the opportunities we have to worship. There are some of you that have not been here for a while. And I hope that you are feeling great this morning as you come in because there's nothing like being together. You know, I know that it's comfortable for many to be sipping their coffee in their pajamas and not combing your hair and all of that, but there's nothing like being with the body of believers. And so we hope that one day we'll get back to a time where we can all be together and praise God and thank the Lord for what he has done. During this time, we continue our theme of that of restoration. I remind you each week that restoration is something that we probably have all experienced in our life, taken something old and tried to make it new and parted within it uh, a newer looking condition, repairing something or reconditioning it or remodeling so it would be like it was at the perfect time in that particular project's uh, existence and to impart new vigor, to revive, and, and uh, to give new life. And the Apostle Paul, as we look at the book of Philippians, makes it very clear that God is in the uh, ministry of restoration, that it's his desire and his will to restore our homes, to restore our marriages, to restore our families, to restore our Christian walk, and he wants to most of all restore the church, and the church is made up of each one of us, and so therefore be mindful of that key verse that's in the first chapter in the sixth verse of the book of Philippians, being confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. The master builder is not through with us yet. He continually does a great work within each one of us. Last night, my wife and I returned late last night uh, through some various uh, flying episodes. Uh, we made it back, and I thank God that uh, I am here with you this particular morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, and I am always grateful and excited about my day to be with you, each one of you, and to see you. We were in Wisconsin for a family funeral, and I was thinking as we were there in Wisconsin of a story that I could open up with today, one that maybe some of you sports fans would uh, appreciate. It was during this time that I was doing some chaplain work with the St. Louis Cardinal baseball team. It was in 1982. The situation was Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin. Now, that's not a baseball stadium, but it was packed with more than 60,000 hardcore University of Wisconsin fans to watch a football game. The football game was against the Michigan State Spartans. <clears throat> that game was quite lopsided. It was very obvious, not too far into the game, that Michigan had a much better team. What seemed odd was that as the score became more lopsided in favor of Michigan State, the local fans for Wisconsin were cheering louder and louder. Now that doesn't sound right. 
<clears throat> why in the world would you be cheering for the other team? How could the home team cheer when their team was losing? Well, it turns out that 70 miles away in the city of Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Brewers were in the third game of the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals, and the Milwaukee Brewers were winning. Obviously, the people in the stands had portable radios and listening devices, and they were cheering for something that was taking place elsewhere. And many of these fans in the stands are listening to these devices, and they're responding to something other than their immediate circumstances. How about you? <clears throat> are you responding to something other than your immediate circumstances? I ask you that question because the Apostle Paul and the subject of restoration, he leans in that direction. In much the same way, we who are citizens of heaven should be rejoicing. Even though you may be going through a conflict, even though you may be suffering from who knows what this morning, perhaps you're still caught up in the COVID circumstances. Regardless, circumstances in your personal life or in the world around us may not be ideal, <clears throat> but we must have the perspective of eternity, Paul tells us. You see, since those who are saved are citizens of heaven, and Paul wants us to have a spiritual mind, and he wants you and I to think from a heaven viewpoint. We find it in today's text. In Philippians, the third chapter, we look at verses 17 through 21. Paul says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, as he writes to the church in Philippi. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and I now tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Wow. If that does not go along with what God has spoken with us this morning, that we must prepare our hearts because his coming is soon, that our lives must be in order and in place. Mohindas Gandhi once remarked, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And then Mother Teresa commented on that. She said, Gandhi felt fascinated with knowing Christ. He met Christians and he felt let down. You know, in our church, we may also experience the same mindset. We may identify with statements such as this because human beings have disappointed us. When someone points to the mishap 
of a professed Christian as a reason not to embrace faith in Jesus Christ. We must tell them to look at Jesus instead. Regardless of how you live a godly example or myself, it's important that people do not necessarily keep their eyes always upon us because for sure we will fail them, but Jesus Christ never fails. And in our text, Paul calls his audience, the church in Philippi, <clears throat> to look at people and to imitate them. The patent to imitate is in verse 17. He says, join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we live or as we do. You see, Paul is appealing here to the readers, to those that he is addressing to imitate him. Now, this may sound like a big head on Paul's part. It may seem like he is conceited. It may obviously come across that there's much vanity involved in this. But I want to remind you, as we have studied this book and as we've looked at the subject of restoration earlier, just a couple weeks ago, it was Paul that just used himself as a negative example by putting stock in one's own status and accomplishments before God. And he now regards those as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ earlier here in chapter 3. Paul does not want his audience, obviously, to imitate false teachers that are coming through the church. False teachers who value external rituals, practices like circumcision. Rather, he wants his audience to imitate him in throwing off all of the external markers in life for the single-minded pursuit of sharing in Christ's suffering and knowing the power of his resurrection. And remember, we looked at that subject in chapter number 3 in verses 10 through 11. Paul's audience is to imitate him, or if he's not present, to imitate those who follow his example. Ephroditus, remember that guy who was going to carry a message and go back to the church? Young Timothy, Paul is saying us. I'm sure that he's using them as an example. Paul presents his life as an example that has made an imprint upon the lives of so many individuals and so therefore, he feels that it's worthy of imitating. But Paul himself, he knows that he is not the ultimate example. It is Jesus Christ. Paul models in his life Jesus Christ. He reflected that in his words, for me, living is Christ and dying is gain. The first chapter, the 22nd verse. For Paul, all of life is captured in Jesus Christ. So everything that Paul is doing is generated by Christ and done for the sake of Christ. And for this reason, Paul provides Jesus Christ as the ultimate example for his audience to follow. He calls the Philippian church to think and to act in humility and self-sacrificial service towards others that not only would they be example to others, but they would be of service. They are to look 
at Jesus who acted in humility and self-sacrificial service towards humanity in his incarnation and also in his crucifixion. You can find that emphasis in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example. He is the original pattern. Jesus Christ is the model from which all things of the same kind are copied or on which they are based, a model of the first form. Jesus Christ is our prototype. He is the one that we look to and we look at the life of Christ and the example. And Paul is telling his audience that this is a certain kind of lifestyle that requires a certain mindset. And also on our part, not asserting your own rights, not considering the needs of others more important than your own, that we should look to others and love others. This lifestyle took Jesus to the cross. This particular lifestyle landed Paul in prison, and Paul calls us to imitate him. In fact, that call is a call to imitate Jesus Christ. I know that there are several of you that are country western fans here. And country western music has always been an interest to me. It seems like country western music, I know that it was the origin was from folk music. It tells it seems to tell a story. Sometimes the stories are real more they're more real than what we realize. Stories that uh, can be of quite interest put to song and put to music. I took an evangelistic preaching class when I was a young student at Central Bible College. My teacher was a man by the name of C.M. Ward. Now C.M. Ward used to teach this class at six o'clock in the morning. He claimed that uh, any outside duties other than his job at headquarters had to be done before or after hours. Six o'clock, it was tough to get up and to have a tie on to go to his class. But he used to tell us, if you can't get up at 6 o'clock on a Monday morning, you're not worth being in the ministry. And C.M. Ward was big on titles. Every sermon should have a title, young man. You need a title in your sermon. If you can't find a title, you go to the local cafe where there's a jukebox and you get a title off the jukebox. <laughs> you see, country western songs have interesting titles, titles that are like, I wish I could be there when you wake up and find me gone, or my best friend ran off with my wife, I sure do miss him. There are titles that tell you that it wasn't God who made the honky-tonk angels, and various titles that you could use in your sermons. Well, today, I want to share with you a piece of music from Rodney Atkins, He's an American country western singer and composer. He touched on our natural tendencies to imitate in his 2006 song. The title of the song was Watching You. Let me share a few words of it. Watching you. Driving through town just my boy and me with a happy meal in his booster seat. Knowing that he couldn't have the toy till his nuggets were gone. A green traffic light turned straight to red. I hit my brakes and mumbled under my breath. His fries went a-flying, his orange drink covered his lap. Well then, my four-year-old said a four-letter word. That started with S. 
I was concerned. So I said, son, where'd you learn to talk like that? He said, I've been watching you, dad. Ain't that cool? I'm a buckaroo. I want to be like you. I want to eat all my food and grow as tall as you. I've been watching you. I hope C.M. Ward would be happy with me. I've been watching you, you know? Maybe we can uh, get John Ashcroft to do a musical Sunday like this, uh, Country Western, uh, I've been watching you. It's interesting. The Apostle Paul says, watch me. Imitate me. Watch me. And the, the fact is, is that you and I are to make disciples out of individuals that we come into contact with. You and I, grandparents and parents, sending our kids to Sunday school is a help in the process. It's not the end of the process. Sending them to children's ministry or youth ministry, role ranges or girls ministry. Evangel Temple wants to come alongside of individuals and to help them through the process. The church exists to connect people to a growing relationship in Jesus Christ, watching you. It's not going to happen with just a couple hours a week of effort and emphasis. It's a lifelong investment. Grandparents and parents, your children are watching you. Your grandchildren are watching you. You may be the greatest impact, in most cases you will be, upon their lives. Some of you grandparents are filling in blanks that your kids are not even carrying out as Christian grandparents. Your children are watching you. Some of your grandchildren may not be getting that lifelong investment in their home, but they come to your place. They're watching you. I cannot emphasize this point enough and emphasize and stand behind what the Apostle Paul is saying. Disciple making is why we exist. And we are here to touch the hearts of individuals. Verses 18 and 19 of our text today. Paul is saying, do not be earthly minded. For as I have often told you before, and now I tell you again. Remember, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Paul's a strong preacher. He's not afraid to reemphasize and say things over and over again. And then he goes on and he says, now I tell you again, even with tears in my eyes, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. You see, there are some that are in Philippi and they're not following this example, and they become what Paul refers to as enemies of the cross. They do not follow the example of Jesus Christ that perhaps is being modeled by Paul. Instead, having a mindset not set on Christ, but on the things of this earth. Instead of being guided by self-sacrificial service to others, they're guided by their own desires. He says their God is their stomach. Guarded by these desires, these people perhaps have not uh, denied Jesus Christ by their confession or their words, but they have denied Christ 
by their behavior. That's dangerous. They are enemies of the cross of Christ because they refuse to conform to the patterns of humility and self-sacrifice that led Jesus Christ to the cross. And when we think about enemies of the cross, you know, it's pretty easy for us to look outside these doors and to look outside these walls and say, oh, yeah, yeah, there they are. I can view them very easily. I can, I can see them. And it's easy for us to sit back and look at the brokenness of the world and identify these enemies. But I really don't believe that's what is in view here in this text. Paul is showing pastoral concern. He is showing this concern for the body of believers here when he says, I say again with tears in my eyes. Literally, I write this while I'm weeping. This is a heavy word. It's a heavy load on me. And it's usually reserved for mourning. And Paul is saying he is crying and he writes this. The warning is this. If you believe, and if I believe that I'm a Christian, but I'm not actively pursuing Jesus Christ, then we are in grave danger. You might say, preacher, that's not very comforting as you say that to me this morning. And good, if you're uncomfortable with that. Because I want to lovingly say that I hope it makes you uncomfortable. I hope it makes you uncomfortable as hell. Because that's the warning that we get in this text. Paul says, the end is destruction. How are you living? What kind of example are you giving? There are two ways that this danger manifests ourselves. I believe, in the church. That is, you either think you're saved by the things that you do, number one, or you think you're saved because of the things that you have done. If you think you're saved by living morally, by being good, you're in danger. You're in danger because the gospel is 100% about what God did through Jesus Christ, his son, to reconcile us to himself. And it's 0% about what we do for God. But even knowing that, we can still find ourselves drifting into a workspace righteousness if we're not careful. And then we see with a sharp contrast, Paul says that he and his audience are not earthly-minded, but they are heavenly-minded. In verse number 20, Paul reminds them that their true citizenship is not of this earth, but their true citizenship is that of, of heaven. Philippi is a Roman colony. And so Paul's audience, they're Roman citizens. They're very much aware of rights and privileges and benefits, and they're proud of it. But Paul redefines the citizenship of a Christian in this setting. The Philippians, and as we look at Christians, are citizens of Christ's city. They're governed by the gospel, and Paul uses the present tense. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, which calls them to act out a true citizenship now in a foreign land. Oliver Wendell Holmes, he was a Supreme Court justice, I believe from the years of 1902 to 1932. He was appointed by Teddy Roosevelt. 
And he is credited for saying this. He or she is so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Interesting. Because Paul points out, however, is that his point is, is that we must be heavenly minded if we are to be any earthly good. Interesting thought. To live out our heavenly citizenship is to follow the example of Christ as modeled in the life of the Apostle Paul. Acting in humility and self-sacrificial service to others. As citizens of heaven, we live in a foreign land. Foreign land where increase in power, where increase in status, where wealth and and self-satisfaction are all things that are prized. And during the Lent season, which we're in right now, there are many people that are fasting. There are many people that are giving up things in order to discipline their living and and, uh, suppress their bodily desires. Following the example of Jesus Christ when he was tempted in the wilderness. Well, there are some that are out there that aren't eating cherry chocolates during Lent. There are some that may not be, who knows, what they've given up. As helpful as these practices are to shut off a mind that's set on earthly things, with our God as our belly, we may still find ourselves as enemies of the cross if we're not careful, simply because of the way we treat each other, the way we treat other people. I believe that it would be important for us today to pray about ways to follow the example of Jesus Christ through humble and self-sacrificial living for the sake of others. And when we see someone living this example, they are worthy of being imitated. Moving on real quickly in verses 20 and 21, he speaks of uh, heavenly minded. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly body so that we will be like his glorious body. I've been on many mission trips. Many of you in this room have been on mission trips with me. Perhaps maybe not in the last 25 years, but maybe there were times before then that you went on a mission trip. Mission trips that included hundreds of young people and adults. And the uh, mission trips were wonderful trips where we learned how to give of ourselves and to help others. But I want to share a scenario with you that I noticed on a mission trip on several occasions. Two young men in their early 20s. Both are comparable in intelligence in their natural ability. They live only five miles apart, but their circumstances are very different. The first young man that I want to tell you about lives in a comfortable apartment. He comes on the job to help us each morning as a local person interested in the work that we're doing, drives a decent car. He has clothes in his closet. He eats well. He's pursuing a career for which he has just been educated in college. And he's finished up. The second young man, he lives in a dirt floor shanty. He has no car. He has only one ragged change of clothes, and he wears those clothes day after day to come and help. 
eats a minimal diet, has no hope for education, and he tries to find manual labor jobs to make ends meet in his life. What's the difference between these two young men? The difference is citizenship. You see, the first young man lives in El Paso, Texas, and is a U.S. citizen. The second young man that would often come and help us lives in Juarez, Mexico, and is a citizen of Mexico. The way these men live is greatly affected by their respective citizenship. If the young man from Mexico could somehow move north, acquire his U.S. citizenship, get an education and a better paying job, his life could possibly change dramatically. Our text this morning, as we look at our text, we see and as we, as we revert back to what we've studied in Philippians, the third chapter, verses 17 and on, we find that Paul uses an analogy here of citizenship to show that as citizens of heaven, we should live differently than those who are citizens of earth. In Philippians, the third chapter, verses 1 through 11, which we've already studied, Paul uses the analogy of an accountant to show that the human efforts and merit he formerly was counting on for right standing with God, he's written off as complete loss. They're nothing but trash, garbage. In Philippians, the third chapter, verses 12 through 16, Paul uses an analogy of an athlete. He says that we must show our Christian life and and we must not only show it, but we must see it as a marathon. That we continue to run each day as a new day in our walk. And now, as we look at these final texts this morning, we find that he uses the analogy of aliens. Aliens. He shows that you and I are strangers in a foreign land. So today... We have witnessed how Paul invites the Philippian church to imitate him and imitate those who live according to Paul's example. I want to remind you that imitating Paul, even imitating Jesus Christ, is not going to save you. It's not going to save you. Those of you that may be viewing today, or those who sit in that room, your salvation doesn't come by imitating The message today is not, nor should it ever be, quit being bad and just be good. Because that's not the gospel. If that was the gospel, we would all go to hell. You see, the gospel is 100% about God giving his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for each one of us. Paul is reminding the Philippians that they're aliens in a land that they live in. We cannot read this is citizens of heaven, and think that Paul's only talking about the future. Citizens of heaven means the present. He's talking about right now, you and I are citizens of heaven because Jesus Christ accomplished that on our behalf. We are citizens, and you and I must pursue the prize of spiritual restoration and a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Pursuing that prize as we read last week, requires that we're not distracted, that we will give up everything that we think we've accomplished to pursue holiness, pursue holiness. Paul holds himself as an example of that pursuit in this text today. Are you a citizen of heaven 
right now. You can only become such through birth, and that is new birth. You see, just as you and I could not do anything about our physical birth, so can we do nothing that affects our spiritual birth. It must come from the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing that we must do is invite him into our heart. He is as powerful now to raise the dead spiritually as the power that he shared while he was on this earth. A new life, if we call upon him, he will take our rebellious heart and he will turn it around. What is your desire today? People are watching you. Is it your desire to serve Jesus Christ? Is it your desire that the Lord would work in your life? I can think of nothing more tragic than profess to be a Christian, to be involved in serving Christ, and then to stand before him one day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not cast out demons? In your name, did we not perform miracles? Only to hear the words of Jesus say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Make sure your citizenship is truly in heaven. And then live as a citizen of heaven. Not a citizen of this earth. But live as an example. One that is a follower of Jesus Christ. Let that be our desire. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.